Father, it is good for us to pause for a moment and let our hearts rest and seek after you. It's so easy to be distracted, so easy to be pulled in a hundred different ways over a hundred different reasons. But we know that we come to a very important time and moment here where your word will be opened where we seek and ask for your spirit to move and apply it. We also know that we need your help to hear it. We need you to give us ears to hear and eyes to see and behold you and hearts to to believe and minds to comprehend. And frankly, Lord, protection from distraction. We need to be stirred up by you this morning. We need to be directed towards you. To sit and hear you speak. We need more than just a routine, more than just a regular moment. We need a divine and supernatural moment. Where you invade our hearts and interrupt our lives, even without our permission. Where you expose the truth of who you are. And what we're called to. And what is really pleasurable for us and satisfying. And life giving. Help us now as we open your word. It's hard to put into words what we need from you. But we thank you that you know it and we ask that you would have your way among us. And be most glorified in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Invite you to take your Bibles with me and open them back to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, again to verses 9 through 14. Specifically... Verse 10 again. Paul has come to this point in his letter at the beginning of this letter. Where he's expressed things that he's thankful for in the Colossian church among those believers. Now in verses 9 through 14, he's expressing his desires for them. And chiefly that desire is communicated in verse 10. He wants them and God by extension wants us to walk in a manner worthy or to live our lives worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. In verse nine, Paul has began by saying, I regularly pray for you and I regularly pray that you might be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you might walk in a manner worthy so that you might be fully pleasing to the Lord. He's laid this foundation via prayer, and that foundation is the knowledge of the gospel, mainly God's overarching plan of redemption throughout history, the work of Christ. And he says, I want you to be filled up, grounded, consumed by a full and right and true understanding of God's gospel work through Jesus. 
And I want you to have the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. I want the Spirit to give you right understanding and right application of this gospel purpose and will of God so that, verse 10, you would be fully pleasing to Him. From verse 10 on, He mentions four different things that are still, by extension, part of His prayer life, but they're also more um, exhortation than they are uh, prayer requests, really. And they're also the fruit of of a life that's built on the gospel fully pleasing to Him. Last week, we looked at the phrase, bearing fruit in every good work. That's the first of the four. The second, increasing in the knowledge of God. Verse 11 is the third, that we would be strengthened for all endurance and patience. And verse 12 is the fourth, that we would give thanks to the Father. Those four things make for a life pleasing, fully pleasing to the Lord, but they're also the result of a life fully pleasing to the Lord, the result of a life that is filled with the knowledge of God's will. Like I said last week, we considered what it meant to bear fruit in every good work, that you and I as Christians are called to produce good works in our lives for the glory of God, and we do them in the name of Christ. We don't have a stagnant or or inactive or lazy kind of faith. God has left us in this world for a very specific reason, so that through us, His glory and love and forgiveness might be made known. We don't work to earn salvation, but once we are saved, we continue to please the Lord by serving His agenda in His kingdom. Today we come to the last part of verse 10, what I think to be quite a bit more important. I want you to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. I want you to be fully pleasing to Him. And this is how that you would increase in the knowledge of God. J.I. Packer wrote a really his breakthrough book. It's called Knowing God. He wrote several books before that, but in the in 1973, I think he wrote this book, Knowing God. And at the beginning of, I think it's his third chapter, he asks a series of rhetorical questions, and then he answers them. And I, I want to put them before you this morning. He begins by asking, he says, what were we made for? Answer, to know God. What aim should we set ourselves in life? To know God. What is the eternal life that Jesus gives? Knowledge of God. What is the best thing in life? Bringing more joy, delight, and contentment than anything else. Knowledge of God. And what, of all the states that God sees man in, gives God most pleasure? Knowledge of himself. Packer is spot on in those questions. He's asking those questions to teach us a lesson. We are made to know God. It should be our chief aim in life. That is the the foundation of our eternal life. That is the best thing, bringing the most joy, delight, and contentment in life, is knowing God and what pleases the heart of God the most. His people knowing Him. But I fear that if there is any real issue or error or plight of the Christian church, it is chiefly that we do not know God as we ought. And that we do not pursue knowing God as we ought to. In John chapter 14 verse 9, Jesus expresses this same issue with Philip. 
John chapter 14, Philip asked the Lord a question in verse 8. He says to the Lord, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. And frankly, that's a true statement, and it's a good statement. It's a good desire. All we need is the Father. All we need is to know and to see and behold God, and that will be enough for us. But Jesus takes issue with that statement. In verse 9, Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? In a moment, we'll look at the fact that the Father is known through His Son, and that's what Jesus is getting at there. But the underlying principle I still think is applicable at this point. How many of us are in danger of being exposed to God and the things of God regularly, like Philip, and yet walking away not knowing God at all? That's a frightening thought for me. It should be a frightening thought for our church. That there is the truth expressed in Scripture that people can be exposed to the things of God, but actually not know God at all. That was the issue for Philip. It was the issue for the disciples at various times beyond John 14. That might be our issue as well. We might be exposed to a knowledge about God. We might even join in on the things of God. We might even know the terminology of God. We might even do the disciplines that God calls us to. And all the while walk away without actually ever knowing God. We might gather together as a church. We might sing praise songs. We might... Worship, we might read the scriptures, we might pray together. All the while, never being drawn to God. A.W. Tozer in his book, The Pursuit of God, writes this at the beginning of his fourth chapter. In his fourth chapter, he's highlighting Psalm 34, verse 8, O taste and see that the Lord is good. And this is, how he begins that chapter. He talks about a man named Canon Holmes of India who set out to write about the average man's faith in God. And this is how Tozer summarizes Holmes's position. To most people, God is an inference and not a reality. He is a deduction from evidence which they consider adequate, but he remains personally unknown to the individual. He must be, they say. Therefore, we believe He is. In other words, I think Tozer is absolutely right there. In other words, people look at creation and they see things around them and they even witness signs and wonders or miracles or things of that nature and they say, all of this must conclude that there is a God, an intelligent designer, a creator, or how can the human body exist this way? How can plant life exist this way? How can creation exist if God is not real? So they look at the evidence and they deduce logically from the evidence that God is real, but they never know Him personally. 
He must be. Therefore, we believe He is. Tozer goes on to say, Others do not even go this far. They know of God only by hearsay. They have never bothered to think the matter out for themselves, but have only heard about Him from others and have put belief in Him into the back of their minds along with various odds and ends that make up their total creed. I fear that number of individuals is even higher than the first. People who sit in God's worship services week after week after week and their relationship with God and their belief in God and their knowing God is built on nothing more than hearsay. They've never once bothered to pursue Him themselves. They've only been told about Him and they've only been told what to believe about Him. They've been spoon-fed, hopefully from the Bible, but they've been spoon-fed and they've never sought out the treasures of God Himself personally. Finally, Tozer mentions a third group. To many others, God is only an ideal. Another name for goodness or beauty or truth. He is something like a law or life or the creative impulse at the back of existence. All of that to say, it's not unheard of, nor do I fear is it uncommon for people to be exposed to the things of God, but really not ever know Him. They mingle, they dabble, they might even taste for just a moment, but they don't really know God. And if that's the case for us, then we have desperately missed the whole point of Christianity. And we've def- desperately missed the whole point of the Bible and the whole point of why we come together on Sunday mornings and Sunday nights and Wednesdays and other times. We come together to be driven to God. We open the Scriptures not to tickle our minds or tickle our ears, but to know God. We sing praises That we might be reminded of the glories of God and the excellencies of God. We hold one another accountable. That we might know the, the life and pathway of God. We pray that we might meet with God. And if we gather and if we read the Bible and if we do all of our other Christian duty without being driven to God, we have horribly missed our greatest treasure and our greatest delight and our greatest calling. And what will be the result of such missing of the mark? A wayward people who are lost and hopeless. A.W. Tozer wrote another book equally as good called The Knowledge of the Holy. And he says in that book, the first step down for any church is taken when it surrenders its high opinion of God. That's absolutely true. If we surrender our high opinion of God or the necessity of pursuing God, then the only place for us to go is down. All our Christian effort, 
All our Christian living, all of our Christian existence must be grounded in and must be motivated by a desire and a thirst and a deep internal longing for knowing our God. Who by His infinite grace has made Himself knowable and invited us, wretched sinners, rebellious sinners, to know Him. That's what it means to be the church. That's what it means to be a Christian. To enjoy the immense pleasure. The immense joy. Of knowing God personally. That's where Paul's desire stems from. In chapter 1 verse 10. I'm praying for you people regularly. I have a desire for you. It's a worthy desire. That desire is that you'd be pleasing to God. And to be pleasing to the Lord. And to live your life in a manner worthy of Him. You must be increasing in the knowledge of God. You must be growing in your understanding of who God is. You and I, church, we are not living until we have a personal relationship with God through His Son, Jesus. And a church will not be pleasing to Him if it is not growing in its knowledge of God. Here is the absolute good news, though. And it's good news of the Gospel. It's that through the work of Jesus Christ, we can actually know God. We can actually know God in a personal, real, sincere, honest way. He's not some abstract being who exists far removed from us our God is real and alive and knowable and present and through the work of his son has invited us to know him that kind of fully available relationship is our greatest desire our chief pursuit Let's ask the question this morning, what does it mean to actually know God? First, we have to understand that God has revealed Himself to us. It's God who has made Himself known. We are saved so that we might know God. That's the culmination of heaven and forgiveness and justification and adoption and all of those things. We are saved to know God. And in that statement is a foundational reality. Since salvation is out of our hands, and only a work of God, and only can we know God by salvation, and we must say God is the one who takes the initiative to make Himself known. By calling us to Himself. Revealing Himself to us. In Matthew chapter 11, we find our Lord speaking again to His disciples and followers. Chapter 11, verse 27, He says to them, All things have been handed over to Me by My Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. The only way you and I will know God is if God has revealed to us. The only way you and I will know God is if God has elected to make Himself known to us. That is the only way we can have relationship with the Father. And so we would say it's an act of infinite grace. 
and an act of infinite love that God has desired and delighted in revealing Himself to His children. Without God, we have no life. Without God, we cannot please Him. Without God, we have no hope. We have no joy. We have no purpose. We wander about in this created world aimlessly, lost, hopeless, in darkness. So the very fact that God has made Himself known, has revealed Himself to His creation, and desires His creation to know Him, is an infinite act of mercy and grace. Think about how great of, of the lengths that God has gone to to make Himself known to you and I. Sending the prophets. Speaking. Sending His Son Jesus. Giving us the Scriptures. You and I have the greatest privilege to be able to open at any time, in any day, at any moment, these, these pages and read from these words and know personally the God who created all things and calls us to Himself. And we do that, we have that gift and we have that privilege because in His divine mercy and in His divine grace, He has ordained and elected to make Himself knowable. We often take such things like this for granted, don't we? And yet it is a foundational truth in knowing God. If He didn't first make Himself known, there is no way you and I would ever know Him. No amount of study, no amount of works, no amount of praying, no amount of fellowship would ever reveal to us the person of God if He did not want to be known. No amount of church attendance, no amount of morality, no amount of seeking would ever reveal God to us if He first didn't elect to make Himself known to us. It is of the highest of God's graces that He is knowable and known. But let me drive that consideration maybe a little bit deeper for us. Because God has made Himself known in a general way and knowable in a general way. But really what Paul's getting at. And what we should be getting at. Is God making himself known in a specific way. And this is what I mean. God has indeed made himself knowable to his creation. But you still not, cannot know God. If he doesn't reveal himself to you personally. You can exist in creation. You can exist viewing the created order. You can exist under the preaching of God's Word. But still, if God does not reveal Himself to you personally, you cannot and will not know Him. That's how all relationships work, actually. We only know so much about the other person as that other person will allow us to know. As that other person reveals him or herself. Certainly is true 
with an infinite, glorious God who is far beyond you and I. We only know of Him what He has revealed to us. We only have the privilege and joy of knowing Him if He delights in making Himself known to us. That means you and I ought to make it our chief concern to plead with God often to reveal Himself to us. To plead to God often for mercy to know more of Himself. And to have a flood of relational glory come over us regularly. You and I, none of us, will know God without first begging Him to make Himself known to us. Here's the good news in that, church. He wants to be known. We have a God who actually honors the desperate prayer of the one who seeks Him. We have a God who delights in the relationship with saved, born again, adopted children. We have a God who's glorified in being known and thus desires it. Which means for us, we can pursue Him with a a fevered urgency, can't we? And with a, with a confidence that He will hear our prayer and answer it. After all, again, look how much He's done to make Himself knowable. A person will have no higher joy than knowing God. And that is a gracious gift given to us by God. And all one must do is ask for it. So in in asking the question, what does it mean to know God? First, we understand it begins with God revealing himself to us. Second, let's consider what it doesn't mean. What knowing God is not. And we begin with the word knowledge that Paul's already used in the immediate context. He's used it in verse 9, but in verse 10, he's using it differently. Remember verse 9, I want you to be filled up to the brim with the knowledge of his will. Verse 10 However, I want you to increase in the knowledge of God. He's not being redundant. He's communicating two different things. In verse 9, I want you to have the knowledge about something. In verse 10, I want you to have the knowledge of a person. Verse 9, I want you to know about God's will, about God's purpose, about God's plan. Verse 10, I want you to know the person of God. The being of God. I want you to know God Himself as a real individual. That goes far beyond knowing about Him. God Himself has expressed this same desire in the minor prophet book of Hosea chapter 4. God takes an issue with the people of Israel. And the issue that He takes is that they don't know Him, nor do they desire to know Him. Hosea chapter 4, verse 1, Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. Verse 6 of Hosea 4, God says, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I reject you. From being a priest to me. What's God concerned there with? 
is he concerned with Israel's intellect? You're not exercising the muscle called a brain. No, he's concerned with their relationship. You don't know me. You don't care to know me. You don't know my plans and my purposes. You don't know my characteristic. You don't know my delights, my pleasures and displeasures. You don't know what I love and what I hate. You know nothing about me. And even worse, you don't care to know anything about me. Why are things going poorly in your life? Because you don't know your God. So it's no surprise we find God in other places saying, I delight and desire you to know me. Paul says it again in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 16, 17, and 18. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, praying that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Himself by having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know the hope to which you've been called. God condemns Israel for not knowing Him. Paul prays for the Ephesians and Colossians to know Him because it's a chief concern of God. The knowledge that's mentioned in all of these passages, Hosea 4, Ephesians 1, Colossians 1, makes God Himself the object of the knowledge. Not other factors outside of God or about God. God Himself as a person. So I'll say it again, we're not called simply to know about God. We're not simply called to know about God's will or even about His existence. Or merely to agree that He exists. We're called to know God as an individual, as a person. So our primary question as Christians is not why or how or what. It is who. Who is our God? J.I. Packer, again, I'm quoting him several times this morning. He says, The width of our knowledge about God is no gauge of the depth of our knowledge of God. The width of our knowledge about God is no gauge of the depth of our knowledge of God. And that is spot on. So often we confuse knowledge about God with actually knowing God. And there is, church, a big difference. Paul's not calling in verse 10 and expressing this desire for mere brain power or academics or intellect. He's not calling for a theology that's separated from the heart, some lifeless orthodoxy that doesn't affect the heart. Not calling for some study habit or study group that doesn't work its way into the heart and the expression of the Christian life. In fact, I would even say a theology that doesn't affect the heart is a colossal waste of time that only produces idolatry and puffs up. Produces the idol of intellect. All our study of Scripture and all our theology, all of our dissecting of the things of God are meant to drive deep into our heart first and foremost and transform us and give us the great pleasure and experience of 
knowing God. So that's what Paul is getting at. He's getting at a knowledge that does engage the mind, but it comes from experience and it exists in intimacy, not merely in knowing about God. He calls us to a knowledge that exists both in the mind and the heart. That exists in fact and in faith. In reason and beyond reason. A knowledge that can't be gleaned simply by study. A knowledge that must be gleaned by study coupled with experience. You will never know God merely by academics. We must intermingle a right knowledge of God from the truths of Scripture with the experience of God in life, in prayer, with the actual pursuit of the person of God. But similarly, you will never know God by experience or prayer alone, will you? You must also study. And here's where we get at what Paul's really talking about. What does it mean to know God? It doesn't just mean studying God's Word apart from experience. And it doesn't just mean experience apart from God's Word. And so often we run to one extreme or the other. And we think because I, I know the, the long theological words of the day or have memorized a whole bunch of verses that I know God, even though I don't pursue after Him, I don't conform myself to Him, I don't seek His counsel or His wisdom, or you're on the other extreme. I never open God's Word. All I need to do is pray and glean a feeling or a sense of His nearness. And the New Testament says neither one of those is right. Neither one of those will suffice to knowing God. God has instead designed it that those who want to know Him must be holy and fully engaged with their whole person. Matthew chapter 22, verse 37, Jesus says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And I think we can use love there synonymously with the knowledge that Paul's talking about here. If you want to know God, then it engages your whole person, your whole being. And anything short of that falls short of really knowing God. I'm trying to convey to you the clarity here this morning, or in clarity. That if you just think that you're smart about the things of God and you think that means you know God, you're wrong. And if you just think, I had a spiritual experience once, therefore I know God, then you're wrong. We are called to something far more than just brain exercise or, or emotional feelings that stimulate from a deceitful heart. We're called to a real honest, vulnerable, transforming relationship with a very real, living, active, moving God. And the words that we read here are not some lifeless uh, organizing, or systematizing of, of things about some 
God or, or created order. They reveal to us the very heartbeat of God and the, the character of God and the delights of God and the desires of God and the love of God and the care of God and the compassion of God. And how will you know those things, though, if you don't seek God in such fashions? God, make known to me your compassion. Make known to me your glory. Make known to me your care. Make known to me your love. So that it's more than just words that I read with my brain and see with my eyes. It's something I know from the depths of my heart. Let me see if I can find the reference. I believe it's in Ephesians. Give me just a moment here. I need my phone. So I can search it. It's in Ephesians. And it talks about knowing the love of God. The all all understanding. Somebody shout it out to me. Three seventeen and eighteen. Thank you. No. Ah, yes, nineteen. We'll back up to seventeen because it's it's part of it. Um, back up to fourteen. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. He says, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. That according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. It's that phrase in verse 19. Knowing something that surpasses knowledge. Here he's talking about knowing the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That's what we're getting at in Colossians chapter 1 verse 10. Knowing something that surpasses understanding. And how do you know something that goes beyond your brain? You know it both in truth and in experience, church. Labor with me in this, this understanding, please. You cannot chalk your mere study up to knowing God. And you cannot chalk your mere spiritual experiences up to knowing God. You are called to know someone who goes far beyond understanding. And yet, the Bible says, miraculously, He is knowable. He's infinite. He's glorious. He's majestic. Possessing all power. And yet, to finite human beings, He is knowable. He goes beyond what our brains can fathom. Beyond what our hearts can experience. In fact, when Moses says, God, I just want to see you. He says, what? No man can see me and live. 
I'm beyond what a human being can comprehend and in his emotions, his feelings, and his mind. And yet, I am knowable and called to be known. This is what we are called to. This is what we're getting at. Knowing God begins first with Him making Himself known to us. And that is an infinite act of grace. And yet, it doesn't just mean it's built on something we can even box down into an understanding within our own brains. It's something that consumes our entire being, our entire selves. So what does it mean? It begins with God. What does it mean to know God? It means first that God knows us. Galatians chapter 4. Look there with me if you will. Verse 4. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you, you, you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so that we might know Him. Verse 7, So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods, idols. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? In verse 9, Paul puts the priority on of grace in, in right order. It's not so much that we know God, it's more that God knows us. We have come to know God, yes indeed, and that is grace and we praise Him for it, but it's more important that God knows us. Permit me to quote Packer again because he says it better than I do. He says, We do not make friends with God. God makes friends with us. Bringing us to know Him by making His love known to us. Talking about the people of God, he says, their knowing God was the consequence of God taking knowledge of them. They know Him by faith because He first singled them out by grace. What matters supremely, therefore, is not the fact that I know God, but the larger fact which underlies it the fact that God knows me. I am graven on the palm of His hand. I am never out of His mind. All my knowledge of Him depends on His sustained initiative in knowing me. I know God because He first knew me and continues to know me. So knowing God is first and foremost the grace of being known by God. Where He in His love pursues us and overtakes us 
and then delights in revealing himself to us. And you know what that requires? It requires complete and total surrender. And surrender to God is not an easy word because surrender invites examination and requires honesty and vulnerability. It means God takes stock of you. I must first be known by God so that I might know God. And if I'm to be known by God, I must let Him know everything. From the blackest part of my heart to the good that I put on for others. Without God knowing us first, we will never know Him. He must always take the first step. Secondly, Look at the language Paul uses in verse 10. We are a people who do not know God and then we're done. We're a people who are called to increase in the knowledge of God. To grow in our knowledge of God. We must constantly be pursuing knowing God. We can never be content with our current knowledge of God. Primarily because He is beyond our understanding and beyond our comprehension. But mainly because we've tasted of His richness. Again, Psalm 34, verse 8, taste and see that God is good. And when you get the taste, you thirst for it. You long for it. It drives you. And it occupies your mind and it gnaws at your spirit till you want more and more and more and more. We are a people who must first be known by God and then pursue an ever-increasing knowledge of our God. That's the joy of eternity, church. We get to spend forever growing and increasing in our understanding of our God. We will never arrive to a full knowledge of God. In glory, in heaven, we get a lot of benefits and a lot of things. But one thing we will never get is a full knowledge of God. We have the privilege and joy of spending all of forever with God Himself thrilling our hearts and satisfying our souls and granting us the greatest pleasure we might ever know and experience with each new revelation of Himself. That's a gift, church, that will never grow old, never wear out, never get boring. And the best part of it is we get to begin it now. That even today you can know the thrill and satisfaction and pleasure of walking with and knowing God. You don't have to wait till heaven. You get the eternal journey of fresh, new, life-giving revelation of God now. Jeremiah chapter 9. If you're going to take away any passage, take away this one. Verse 23 and 24. God says this. Thus says the Lord. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. And let not the mighty man boast in his might. And let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this. That he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love justice, and righteousness in the earth. 
For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. I delight in justice, steadfast love, righteousness in the earth, and the man who knows and understands me. So Paul will write several hundred years later to the Colossian church. I want you to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. How do you please God with your life? Increase in your relationship with Him. Beyond academics, beyond mere just isolated experience, be known by God and in turn know Him. Be saturated with God. Let your whole being be enveloped in God. Sucked up by God. And if that is not your chief aim and your chief pursuit and your chief desire, then you're missing the mark. Let me just finish very quickly by saying this. How do we know God? I was wanting to answer that question. I'll answer it tonight. But let me give you the answers now. Because we come down to this point of having to ask, how do we know God? It doesn't require some seminary degree or anything of that nature. We know God through His Son Jesus with the help of His Spirit from both creation and Scripture in the fellowship and work of the church. That's the answer. I'll try to unpack that later. Let me give you one final Packer quote to summarize it better. You can have all the right notions in your head without ever tasting in your heart the realities to which they refer. A simple Bible reader and sermon hearer who is full of the Holy Spirit will develop a far deeper acquaintance with his God and Savior than a more learned scholar who is content with being theologically correct. Absolutely. The only way, church, for you and I to please God and to have pleasure ourselves is to know God. And you and I, we're not called to some lifeless, ritualistic existence in the church. Some heartless pursuit of orthodoxy. We have the greatest calling thrust upon our souls. The greatest gift offered to humanity. Where God in His infinite grace has made Himself knowable. And then through the mercy of His Son has called us to know Him. Who takes stock of you and I and knows us so that we might know Him. And in knowing Him, we find the wholeness of who we are. The completion of our, our satisfaction and our joy. The problem is when we busy ourselves with the things of God and we lose sight of God Himself. I wish I could spend the next several minutes just pleading with you to truly contemplate what it means to know God personally. And for some of you to realize that you don't know Him personally. You know a lot about Him. And you know a lot of good answers. And you probably do a lot of good stuff. But you really don't know Him. And those of you who have tasted and seen that God is, that the Lord is good and have been invited in to know Him truly and, and definitely, 
Won't you remember with me that there's no greater calling upon our lives, no greater joy, nothing better we can give ourselves to than knowing more of our God? That's what we're called to, church. And this time we're going to do something different. We're going to take the Lord's Supper. Because the only way we know God, again, is through the death and resurrection of Christ, what the Lord's Supper represents. But before we do, I want to give you a moment and ask you to be alone with God and to plead with Him to make Himself known to you. And as Paul says about the Lord's Supper, to examine your heart and ask God to reveal any sin to make you worthy to partake of the Lord's Supper, to make sure you're a born-again believer. Why don't you take a few moments and then I'll pray and we'll enter into a time of taking the Lord's Supper. Father, no man has the right words or enough right words to, to try to plead with a person or with a people concerning the importance of knowing you as your word defines it and expresses it. I think of your servant Spurgeon who said it's better to speak six words with your Holy Spirit than thousands of words without him. And I pray that's been the case today, that through some feeble attempt here, you have done in the hearts of these people what you've done in my heart all week. You've stirred me to passionately long for you. You've opened my eyes to remember again in a fresh way my greatest calling and my greatest gift to know you through your son. And I, I just pray, as dependent as we all are, that you will accomplish that same pur purpose among these people. As we come now to take the Lord's Supper, remind us of what you have done through your son Jesus so that we might be saved to know you. That our hearts might be filled with gratitude and humility and thankfulness. Because you have so worked in such a way to bring us into relationship with you. I pray for us, God, that we would walk in a manner worthy of you, fully pleasing to you. By growing and increasing in our knowledge of you. Help us to do this. In Jesus' name, amen.